The following podcast is the first of three podcasts from the 2019 AGM, and the topic is fuel management and woodlot licenses, presented by Mike Simpson. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see a lot of uh, woodlot licensees and others um, again. Uh, it's nice to be in Smithers. I haven't been here for a long time. It's a part of the province I don't get up to very often, but uh, hopefully I'll change that soon. So, um, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you, first of all, overall, to the Woodlot Product Development Council for the opportunity to work on this project. It's really, um, it was neat. It was interesting. It kind of brought together a lot of the background that I've been working on for the last little while. I think, as a lot of you know, I'm your, your FFT, Forest for Tomorrow Land-Based Investment Coordinator for the Caribou Woodlot Association, the Kamloops, and then at the federation level as well. Um, so it ties a lot of that together. For the last number of years, we've been doing some Forest Enhancement Society projects in the Caribou Woodlot Association. So it builds on that knowledge. And then in other work that I do, I've been involved in interface fire and community wildfire protection plans for 10 years plus. Um, so it kind of was a neat opportunity to bring it all together. So thanks for the opportunity to do this unique project. And I want to thank Kathy and the council. I want to thank um, the EPP committee. We kicked around some drafts and had some feedback on some conference calls over over the summer as well. So Brent, Chris, and Lee. And I want to thank Brian as well. He kicked around lots of um, drafts. We did a lot of that with our non-aligned summer holiday schedule, but we made it work. So just as an outline, um, what I want to cover um, today, what the purpose of the project is, is really to create some extension tools and some guidance for woodlot licensees about fire mitigation, fuel hazard reduction, or the short form, we'll just call it fuel management. So managing those forest fuels. As you all know, given the wildfire seasons we've had of, of recent years in certain parts of the province, there's a lot of interest in this. There's a lot of money floating around. And so um, really the idea is to, the outline for today and the projects that I worked on is to go over um, the terminology, make it really clear, what are your obligations as a licensee for your commercial harvesting versus what's a non-obligation. Um, talk about the elements of fuel management, um, why you would want to pursue it, why you would not want to pursue it. Because I'm not here to sell it. I'm here to give you info about what it's all about. You know, it isn't for everybody everywhere, but just to talk about what those pros and cons are, um, talk about some funding opportunities, and then to wrap it up. So, and Brian or somebody is going to keep me on time, and I'll watch my clock as well. So terminology. So the terminology for fuel management, think of fuel management as being, you know, a really high level of removal of those um, fuels. So beyond your basic obligations. So we're talking about, here's a picture and example. So fuel management, this is a picture of interior Douglas fir in the Williams Lake area of before and after. So fuel management is going to remove a lot of that fuel um, that's going to burn in a fire. You know, the surface fuels, the ladder fuels, and whatnot. So the term fuel management applies to all the stuff, like at a really high level of removal, noting that all vegetation is going to burn. We can't stop fires completely, but what we're aiming to do is really reduce the likelihood and the intensity of it. The other terms up there, hazard assessment and hazard abatement, those are your obligations if you're doing timber harvesting in an area. Um, that's your obligation post-harvest to assess the, the fuel hazard, the fire hazard, as per the Wildfire Act, and if needed, to abate that hazard. 
But think of that as abating the fire hazard to a much you know, higher or a lower level of um, removal. So your obligations as a licensee, if you harvest on a hectare or a certain area, are to abate the fire hazard, but not to the point in that picture that I showed. The non So that's your obligation if you're harvesting in an area. If you're not harvesting in an area um, and you have funding for fuel management, you know, that's the non-obligation where you have funding opportunities, and we'll talk about that, where you clean it up to a really high level. The other terminology is wildland urban interface. Um, you've probably heard that a lot, or the WUI. It's, it's defined in layers in the provincial government database system. Um, in essence, think of it as, they define it as um, six or more structures per square kilometer. So a structure can be an outbuilding, it can be a home, you know, or um, any sort of a structure, but usually it's homes. And then there's a two kilometer buffer around that as well. So if you dive into the, the mapping layers, that's well defined what the WUI is. And that's really a lot of the places where we focus fuel management work. And structures, as noted, are generally homes, but they can also be outbuildings, um, garages, and other structures maybe that aren't privately owned um, by individuals, but can be cell phone towers and other sorts of infrastructure on the land, which may be on your woodlot. So again, there's that before and after picture. Now, obviously a lot of different woodlots and there's a lot of different ecosystems and variability. There's a lot of different types of um, fire risk in different parts of the province. This is interior Douglas Fir, Williams Lake area from about 10 plus years ago. Uh, but obviously uh, there's, there's different risks and um, threats in different parts of the province. So why pursue fuel management? Why would you as a woodlot licensee want to consider it? So the key purpose is to reduce the likelihood and intensity of a wildfire. So as I noted, you know, everything's going to burn at some point. Even that, the picture on the right, you know, in certain conditions is like we had in the last couple of years, you know, everything's going to burn. But the idea is that we're going to reduce the likelihood of a fire by removing a lot of those surface fuels, those ladder fuels, that stuff that's um, built up on the ground, and the intensity of a wildfire. So if a fire does start, it's going to be easier to action. It's not going to spread as fast. And so really the idea is that we're, we're slowing it down and improving the ability to control it as opposed to, and suppress it as opposed to not having a fire at all. The only way we can do that is by paving it. Um, the real key, the second bullet there is really to protect structures. And that's really, you know, from the funders and the investors, the real driving force is homes that are adjacent to woodlots. A lot of woodlot licenses are right next to communities or in rural areas. You're up against subdivisions or rural acreages. And that's really the primary driver. And I think what funders want to see in terms of what we're protecting. Um, but again, it can be within the caribou. We know there's a number of cell phone towers and other infrastructure that's important. Fire works two ways though. It can also protect your woodlot. If you've got a buffer where we've done that fuel management work where you're next to private land, maybe where somebody's burning debris piles, on their property or, or burning stubble on a hayfield, and that risk of the fire coming into your woodlot, you know, it can also work to protect your woodlot. It's not just protecting the structures in terms of reducing it. Um, it can also be really selective on specific areas. Now, most of you, I know what you're thinking when you look at that picture on the right, you don't want that in terms of your stocking, your future growing fiber, and a lot of your woodlot. So the idea, 
field management and the prescriptions and the work, because it is very expensive, and we'll get to that, is you want to focus it on some really selective areas next to those structures. So we're talking two hectares, five hectares, maybe 20 hectares, depending on, you know, what values you have next to your woodlot. And those treatments can be really specific in terms of like the first 10 meters next to a private property in a home can be the most amount of removal and then up to 30 meters away, less removal, and then up to 100 meters, even less. So the idea is it's very specific in terms of, um, you know, what you do on certain areas. And the last thing to think about in terms of why would you want to consider fuel management is it's really just another form of density management. So if you're spacing on your woodlot, you're looking to improve the future diameter, the future growth, the future value. This is, think of it as an extreme level of density management where in maybe 20, 30, 40 years, it's your peelers, it's your house logs on a couple of small areas. So the elements of fuel management, you know, just to really briefly um, go over it is crown separation, which really we accomplish through a harvesting component, a commercial timber harvesting component. Um, tying into points of control. So you don't just want to do fuel management on a really small area and not tie it into say a road for access or a landing or something that's opening and it's already got to reduce fire risk. Um, removing surface fuels and the standing dead material in that understory. Removing the ladder fuels so that fire can't you know, start on the ground and then go up to the crown. And then potentially burning to remove the surface fuels as well. And I got lots of pictures to show that. So thanks to Tom and lots of others who shared photos over time. So this is a good example of crown separation. So some aerial photos, probably with a drone from Tom. Um, you can see, you know, in these pictures where we've really separated compared to the edges of the photo, you know, you've got that crown separation. So that a fire comes into there and it goes up to the crown, it's not going to go crown to crown. Um, surface fuel removal, removal of that standing dead. Um, in Williams Lake, where I lived for a lot of time, in a lot of dry southern interior areas, you've got a lot of dead understory, which is just, you know, in the right conditions, um, is just, you know, great fuel for fires. So removing that material can be done manually. It can be done mechanically as well. We can use um, different, you know, different types of machinery, such as forwarders as well. With that larger material, you can do some of it during the winter. Doesn't all have to be snow free. Um, removing the ladder fuels. Yes, the guy on the left with the pruning, that's super labor intensive, but that's the idea is what, um, you know, to really effectively reduce that ladder fuel potential, moving fire from the ground up into the crown. You wanna prune up to three meters, sometimes up to five meters. And sometimes that's better done with a machine, um, but sometimes it can be done manually as well. And you can see the picture on the right, you know, kind of doing that, the, the result of the pruning. Surf, uh, so burning piles, for sure. A lot of this, you know, generates a lot of piles on the ground. And unfortunately, our economics aren't there everywhere. Sometimes they're funded by, you know, car different carbon initiatives to try to get that material to a facility like a um, cogen plant. But in most cases, we're still piling and burning that small stuff. Um, and then the picture on the left, I believe, would be a, basically a prescribed burn on the ground, which really removes all that surface fuel as well. So the finished product. You look at that, and you know those stands have a lot reduced, uh, a much lower likelihood of having fire. And if there is going to be a fire in there in the right conditions, it's going to be very controllable. 
and easily uh, suppressed. Does this look great? Again, as I said at the beginning, I'm not here to sell this and say you should do it everywhere. You know, this isn't sunshine and lollipops, rainbows and unicorns. Um, you know, it's going to work in the right place and when you're protecting the right structure, but you don't want to do it everywhere. So why would you want to avoid fuel management? So the key thing is, as a woodlot licensee, it may not be compatible with your goals. And it may not be the area where you want to do timber harvesting. It might be, and I can think of a number of woodlots, maybe a part of the woodlot, you know, because it's narrow strips next to a private property often. It may not be an area that's roaded and that's really very accessible. It might be the fact that what we're dealing with in some of the caribou woodlots right now, you've got bugs or other issues in other parts of the woodlot and no real driving incentive to actually do any, any activities in this part. It might be inconsistent with your management plan or your woodlot license plan. Now, a lot of the prescriptions that are done um, for this stuff, it can meet the stocking levels, especially if it's multi-storied or multi-level, but you might have to amend your stocking standards to include in the, the fuel management stocking standards and have reduced stocking going forward. You might already have identified wildlife tree strategy or other objectives on that area next to that private land because maybe 20 years ago or whenever um, you know you thought the best thing for those neighbors would be to you know not harvest right in their backyard after a couple of years of fire people are thinking that maybe it is a good thing it might leave an area susceptible to blow down insects and disease or erosion so if you're doing this removal you want to be careful about you know what you might be introducing it might be that you know, if you have root rot in that area, a partial cut, which is basically a fuel management type project, might exacerbate that root rot. So that's a consideration as well. And believe me, and I can talk to you over the break or anytime tomorrow as well, it may be too complex or too much hassle. We're working through right now in the Caribou about how to get some of these prescriptions underway that have both a timber harvesting, a commercial component, and then a funded part. And we'll come to that in a bit. So other considerations are, and some of you, I think, I know in the room, um, have had some pressure from others to do fuel management or have a fuel break through your woodlot um, license area. That can happen, and that can come from BC Wildfire Service, it can come from local government or First Nations that are doing community wildfire protection plans. Um, so that's a consideration as well. It, it'll have an impact to your timber supply, potentially. You know, looking at those pictures where you've cleared things out, you're growing value, and again, it's density management, but you're not growing a lot of volume. So again, you don't want to do this on a lot of area of your woodlot. It's going to impact your future timber supply. Um, it can impact other resource values as well. Uh, and again, you're going to need to potentially do amendments to your woodlot license plan. And maybe, if it's a big enough area, your management plan and your AEC calculation. So there's a lot of things to consider before you dive in and say, yep, fuel management's the right thing for me. And costs as well. The way we've looked at it and set it up is because, you know, the most effective fuel management in a lot of areas would be a, a commercial component to remove that larger stuff to get the crown separation and then do the funded fuel management small stuff it's a real mix of um, having the commercial part and then the funded non-commercial part that's just going to be piled and burned. And because of softwood lumber and pricing implications, we want to try to separate those phases and have that commercial timber harvest phase first. Um, so your obligation after that commercial part is done 
is to do all those other basic requirements before you move into the other part. So your waste assessment, waste abatement if needed, um, fire hazard assessment and abatement for the commercial part, and then a silviculture survey to maintain stocking. So most of these would be an intermediate cut of some sort, then you've got to confirm to uh, the Forest Service that you've maintained stocking before you start into that small non-commercial stuff. So it's complicated, for sure. And there's a lot of things about how, making that work together. And then you do need a, you know, for the commercial part, you either need a cutting authority. Most of you have a 1CP probably in a lot of districts. In the Caribou, we're still getting into that. And there's a couple of people that have them, but having a 1CP is the best way. And then a FERPA section 52 is needed for that small non-commercial stuff. So as I mentioned funding, you know, there's no real, unless you've got a commercial market for stuff like this and branches and, and really small material, you're not going to do that on your own dime. There's funding available for that, as I mentioned, but really in the WUI and the wildland urban interface and, and the really extreme areas where you're next to a lot of structures and values. Um, so the funding to do that non-commercial work can be fully funded, you know, for you as a licensee or it can be tendered out to get somebody to do that work. Now, the Forest Enhancement Society of BC, and we've got Steve here as executive director, has, has funded a lot of this work in the past, and that's who's funding the current work in the Caribou uh, Woodlot Association. Now, I note on, noted on here that their role appears to be sunsetting, but I don't know if that's fully true. You know, this is, lots of things are in, in change, and we don't know Forest Enhancement Society's role in the ministry's role going forward. I've heard different things, and I talked with Steve at breakfast this morning. So they still have a role to play, um, but you know, going forward, it, it's unclear about who's going to do what. The Community Resiliency Investment Program is another program that's um, administered out of the Union of BC Municipalities. They fund field management work mostly within municipal boundaries and with First Nations, um, and local governments and First Nations can apply. It's less likely for woodlots, but you know, it is a source that might you know, be able to work. Forest lands, natural resource operations, and rural development, whether the district people or BC Wildfire Service, you know, they, I believe, are going to be taking on a primary, may be taking on a primary funding role going forward. Um, so between them or FEST, you know, those would be the ones. And then there's a whole bunch of other funding sources that do other minor things um, with funding going forward as well for fuel management. So in summary, and I'm happy to take questions and um, have the uh, discussion. Well, you know, there was one question already, um, but as Dean noted, I'm here the whole time. So if anybody wants to chat about fuel management or FFT or anything like that, I'm available. I'm here tomorrow on the tour as well. In summary, the key point that we want you to take away is that your decision as a woodlot licensee to take on fuel management is yours. Don't be bullied or pressured into it um, by other groups. Uh, make an informed decision. You know, there's a lots of misinformation out there about, you know, I'm not going to be able to grow any timber or it's going to be too complicated. You know, what we tried to do in developing these products is provide you with some tools. Um, so the website has what we did before I developed this presentation is there's sort of a situational analysis from the spring that we put together. That's on the website for the Federation website. I've got a number of copies of a checklist that we developed. So if you're going to go down this path, what to consider. 
And there's a few other things that we um, developed as well. Bottom line, key message, make an informed decision about whether fuel management's right for you and your woodlot, if it aligns with your goals, what you want to do, and know what you're getting into in terms of your roles and obligations versus what the funding will do. I'm going to leave it at that and see Dean or Irina if we want to take any questions or discussion. Okay, so I want to go to George maybe. Your first question, George, was, so I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers. There's probably smarter people in the room who can answer that better. So I would say let's, you know, answer that over or have discussion over time. But I think, George, I mean, my thoughts as a forester around that are we're not doing this stuff everywhere. It's expensive. So, you know, if I had a home on five acres and I was adjacent to a woodlot, I would want to, you know, have that done in a very small area because it is effective from a fire management point of view in terms of, you know, slowing the fire down and protecting structures. But I don't think it's a matter of scale. I don't think we're doing it enough on a large enough area of forest that we're really impacting those habitat values. To me, it's it's about being very selective in which areas you want to do it. But others might have other views. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, Mike, just a question here. I need some yeah. advice, okay? Uh, I'm talking about my private property. Um, I've intensively managed it for forestry for 40 years, and uh, I've had three-quarter sections, and I've put in buffers all along the property boundaries, but just outside my private land is a 600-hectare dogma. Oh, I mean augma, okay? It is three-quarters dead pine, and it's three-quarters down. So yeah. what would your suggestion be for that? So in different areas where I've been involved in community wildfire protection plans and Quinnell and Williams Lake, we're, we're starting to bring up the issue that we can't just reserve augmas. We need to do fuel management in them, especially where, you know, they're next to private properties and structures that have values to protect. So I would say go to your district manager and, and push for that. And I know some of the, the higher level Flinro staff that I've talked to, they realize that, yeah, we... After 2017, 18, we need to do things different and we can't just set these aside. So I think there's a, a, a willingness to, to do what makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah, question? Yeah, I was just wondering what the, uh, if there's any changes coming to the FFT program itself. Do you know anything about that? There's talk of it uh, getting pushed back into sort of a ministry controlled operationally administered sort of a thing do you have any insight into that i don't know for sure i think there's talk of rumors of potentially doing that and that's kind of along the same lines of what i heard in the summer um, as we were developing this about you know forest enhancement society's role right. that there's interest in government kind of taking that back and delivering it but i don't know for certain brian might have any thoughts on that but um the bad news, though, from what I understand about FFT is, is Brian and I have been a broken record for a number of years now saying, you know, FFT, LBI needs to fund a broader range of activities. Mm -hmm. It's pretty limited and narrow right now, and I know there's not a lot of interest from a lot of places in the room, and we keep, you know, repeating that message, and uh, hopefully that'll be the case, but I don't know about the delivery. Again, I'm available, happy to talk fuel management or FFT, you know, over the next day and a half. I don't know, other ministry people in the room might might speak. But the only thing I can say, George, is I know not for woodlots, but in the Williams Lake area where we've got a recent community wildfire protection plan, um, the ministry found, I can't remember how much money, but basically they put out a, a proposal um, to look at the primary areas for fuel management. 
do the on the ground assessments, develop prescriptions for about a thousand hectares. And that just, you know, is still currently on BC bid, or I think it closed last week. So other, other than that, I can't speculate going forward. Time for one more. Tom. It's not really a question. Um, answering George uh, to some extent, we do a lot of fuel management work in the community forest I work for, and the stands we're going into are no longer within the natural range of variation for fuel buildup. We're looking at the results of uh, decades of fire suppression, ingrowth, um, lack of natural disturbance. We have weird forests, and we're trying to reduce the intensity of the fire, as you said, mm -hmm. when it occurs. The other Chad is uh, we're seeing it as a tool to increase the resiliency, meaning the survivability of the large stems on the site. When it burns with less intensity, we're hoping some of our dug firs actually lots of our dug firs mm -hmm. are still green and healthy at the end of the process. We're worried about the beetles that come after fires, all of those things, but we're looking at an unnatural situation. We know we're taking nutrients in fine fuels off the site. We think the buildup's unnatural to begin with. Yep. We're leaving CWD. We believe nutrient cycling is still happening and we're trying to keep a green stand there after the fire that we're convinced is coming as well as the many WUI and interface concerns that we're addressing. So that's kind of our program in a nutshell. Yep, thanks Tom. I would agree with that 100%. You know, this is a way I see to get multiple wins. You know, and you mentioned forest health and resiliency to future fire, but also I know when we've done lots of this work around the Williams Lake and the dry interior area too, we're solving the, the spruce budworm problem. We're getting rid of that, so. Okay, I'm gonna check with Irina and see if we're Done for time? I think yeah, we are? I think. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Um, <laughs> hey.